you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. For the better part of a year, I've been searching for anyone who saw Oscar Gomez the night he died. In an earlier episode, we found a list of names in a briefcase. Names of people who were in the apartment where Oscar was staying in Santa Barbara. And we've been writing, emailing, reaching out in any way we could think of. And I did find someone, Jose Gonzalez, one of Noel Huerta's six roommates. But Jose told me he was not with the other roommates and Oscar on November 16th, 1994. I didn't see him in the apartment that night. I know they were all partying. After everything I learned last episode about the bluffs and Oscar's injuries, I thought the investigative part of this journey was over. But then, one of the many emails we sent out came back. It said, my apologies for the late response, but that is me we made contact with another roommate from the Santa Barbara apartment where Oscar spent some of his last hours alive. And he remembered Oscar. Hello, Javier. Javier, it's Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Hey, what's up, Adolfo? Hey, hey. Javier Frigero talks to me like he knows me, like we're catching up. Unlike Jose Gonzalez, who struggled to remember the events leading up to Oscar's death, for Javier, it's like November 16, 1994, happened last weekend. He tells me that he remembers the march at UC Santa Barbara, Oscar's last day alive. He remembers his roommate, Noel Huerta, nicknamed Nene, bringing Oscar over afterwards. And he remembers something going down at the apartment. Uh, I ended up going back home after the situation and... I'm not gonna lie to you. I mean, I was getting all fucked up and shit. And there was a situation at our apartment. I've been working so hard to get these details. And now, I can't believe how candid he's being with me. What happened? You know, somebody said something stupid. And, and I know Kike and uh, Oscar had an issue. Kike is Enrique Mendoza's nickname. He was another roommate. What was the issue? Was, well, Kike was always a hothead. Right? And, you know, somebody doesn't like what they hear, and they got all masked, and they went to the back of the fucking apartment, and they got into a fight. You saw them fighting? No, I was actually inside. I mean, I, I kind of heard it, but they stopped it right away. It was quick and fast. Nothing big. You know, so, like, two guys, like, they, like, taking care of the discussion, but all of the roommates were there, and fucking, yeah, they stopped it right away. Quick, quick and fast. Did you hear, like, chairs flying, or... or oh, no, 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 not at all. Not... No, not even. We were so poor, we had no chairs back there, you know? No, it was like just a regular couple of punches. He ended up punching Oscar once. A good, nice hit. Then, Nene came in. Nene ended up walking and speaking with Oscar about the whole situation, I guess, to calm down the whole situation. Took Oscar in front of our apartment, because there was a park right in front of our apartment. This may be the park we've heard of. A grassy patch on top of the bluffs that locals called Dog Shape Park. And he put him on the chair on the bench right there in front of the park, right? And 
was right there by a cliff. Uh-huh. So next, you know, he sat him there and... And, and you remember? Javier, Javier, you remember seeing this? See, seeing Nene put Oscar on a chair at the park? So I was actually in the living room, and we have a big-ass picture window, and I saw that happen. And then and then Nene left him on his own, and nobody nobody well, kept an eye on him? Because he was actually across the street, though. It was like, it was, he wasn't that far away, you know what I mean? It was like maybe 10 to 15 feet away. Was there a fence there at the park? Do you remember? There's no fence whatsoever. Back then, there was no fence. Oh, hell no. There was no fence at all. That park, like, it's like saying that park was there, though, but it was a cliff, and you better be careful. And then all of a sudden, then they went to go see how he was doing, and he was gone. He had walked off. If Oscar fell, then it's possible it happened right there in the park. However, the sheriff's death report suggests it's more likely that Oscar walked about half a mile away to Campus Point and fell from the bluffs there. Yeah, walked off, so we went looking for him. Who did? All of us did. Who, who all of you? I mean, I see all the roommates, like me, Nan, and all of us, we go, fuck it, let's go walk him down the street of DP, see what he's doing, where's he at, and nothing. We couldn't find him. He got tired of probably sitting there. We figured, okay, he went walking up and down. Wow. Hearing Javier's story, it sounds like the roommates became genuinely worried when they realized Oscar was missing. So, so this is what I'm thinking, Javier. I mean, and I've been, I've been, you know, kind of talking to people since September of last year about this podcast. So, so th- this is the first time I'm hearing from someone who actually saw Oscar that night in the apartment. And the way you're describing what the roommates did after Oscar left was like am i hearing you say that you got you all were concerned no you always be concerned about you know a person's situation especially when we've been drinking smoking blood and whatsoever you know what i mean but if enrique was out there looking for him it seems like enrique kind of like you know set aside whatever you know no, he was cool about it but don't get me wrong though he understood though you know enrique enrique's a smart guy though he understood you know Things happen for, for that situation, but yeah, hey, you know what, though? It is what it is, and you know, you know I'm not going to be having a grudge or whatsoever. By the way, we tried reaching out to Enrique Mendoza, but we never got a response. Javier says he remembers the roommates in the apartment being rounded up by the sheriff's office. No criminal charges were filed. Some people believe that the roommates, like Enrique, might have been responsible for killing Oscar. Oh, not at all, though. No. I can tell you that. No, that's... That'll be super bullshit. Some people still believe that Oscar was murdered. That's what they say. Even the dad said that one time, because he even met the dad. Did he talk to you guys? He talked to us for a little bit, and we apologize. We gave our condolences and so forth. Javier is recounting memories from almost three decades ago. And his story fits with what I've learned during this investigation. It fits with Jose's story. It fits with the pathologist assessment of Oscar's injuries as likely accidental. And it fits with the pattern of bluff-related deaths in Isla Vista. It fits with a version of events in which Oscar, under the influence, upset after a fight, alone and disoriented in the darkness, had a terrible, fatal accident. Everything I've learned 
points to this version of the story. But I want to make one last try at getting the Santa Barbara Sheriff's version of events from someone who had promised us potential information early in our investigation. Adolfo Guzman Lopez, and this is the final episode of Imperfect Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Raquel, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Natalie and I get on a Zoom call with Raquel Zick, Public Information Officer for the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office. When we started looking into Oscar's story, she told us she'd consider releasing the investigative report on Oscar's death if we shared some of our reporting with her. Here's what she told us back then. You may not be able to release those 150 pages until you can get through some some of your interviews and we can kind of have more of a discussion. Is the case historic and we're done with it? Or is there things that you're coming up with that people are telling you that we want to look into? So we're here to close the loop and make one final try for the investigative report. We want to get as much information as possible before we present our findings to those who were close to Oscar. Raquel keeps her camera off so I'm looking at the black square with her name on it as I make my pitch. So yeah, we wanted to take up your offer to come back to you after we'd done, you know, the, the reporting we needed to do. So uh, so can I do that? Can I just kind of give you some of the highlights of what we what we found? Yeah. We talked to a retired uh, forensic pathologist, Aster, about um some of the injuries that the family found suspects, such as no broken bones in other parts of the body. If this I give Raquel an overview of what we found. So yeah, so this roommate said that he, he saw Noel put Oscar on a chair out there to chill out, and Noel came back in, and, and then, you know, they looked, and he was gone. It sounds like you ran almost every theory, you know, to its end. It's taken a while. One of the things we found is that so few of the family and friends have a, a basic knowledge of, of the sheriff's investigation. 
And that absence of facts has caused a lot of pain in a lot of people. So one of the important things will be to look at the narratives in that criminal investigation and, you know, summarize them and present them in the podcast. So, um, yeah, can you release that to us? The criminal one is not subject to public release. Well, that, that, that's, state law does not prohibit the release of these documents. State law says that an agency can decide mm-hmm. whether or not. And when we sat down with you, you said, okay, come back to us, tell us what you found, and then let's talk about releasing that to you. That's what you said. And, and you did ask for it through the, through the PRA process and already received a response. Raquel, I kind of feel like you were dangling a carrot that you were never going to give to us. Our records department has responded to your request. We did submit several PRAs, public records requests, that were denied. But Raquel had told us to come back after we'd finished our reporting so she could reevaluate. But now she's acting as if this never happened. My understanding was the sort of delicate balance was that if in our reporting we find information that would mean that you want to reopen the case, then obviously you would want to withhold the criminal investigation because it might become active. Or if at the end of our reporting, we tell you what we found, it doesn't bring any new information, then you would consider Oscar as like a historical figure. There's no harm in releasing the criminal investigation mm-hmm. and that you would consider doing that. So, and this isn't, a, this isn't a me considering, this is my agency considering it. You're sure. welcome to resubmit it based on, you know, hey, we this is what this is where we're at. We're going to, you know, release this podcast and we'd like it for part of that. I I would suggest resubmitting through the PRA process with that additional information. We'll do that. Do we have a good chance? It's not for me to say. So I resubmit the PRA. And it's a no. Dealing with the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office, the opaque, bait-and-switch language, it makes me really feel for Mr. Gomez and what he must have gone through after his son's death. The frustration of being told one thing and then later being told another, whether it was through unclear communication or disregard. The lack of transparency, the mutual distrust, colored everything about this case, which makes me all the more uneasy to tell Oscar's closest friends and family about our investigation. Thanks for meeting us. You're welcome. We wanted to have this kind of sit down with Mr. Gomez, Uh and we're not able to at this point. Yeah. So we're having it with you. I meet Juan Gonzalez at an outdoor picnic table near a Baldwin Park rec center. Since my last sit-down with Oscar's dad, when I turned off the audio recorder, Mr. Gomez asked for more time to process. It's hard to relive the most painful event of your life in front of a tape recorder, and I respect that. So I'm going back to Juan, the person who put me on this path in the first place. One of the things... I want to do with you is 
close the loop in a way on this production. So, okay, you know, we began nine months ago, mm-hmm. more or less. Mm-hmm. And so we want to um, talk to you a bit about what we found along the way and in our investigation. So, over the course of about an hour, we sit across the picnic table and I run through what we found. First, that we didn't find evidence for the big hazard theory. And he laid out what his brother Noel told him soon after Oscar died. What we learned from Javier Frigedo. Javier tells us that Noel sat him down on a chair, came back into the apartment. The roommates look out and they say, Oscar's gone, where is he? Hey. The public records requests to various agencies and institutions involved that didn't turn up anything. No communication from these Santa Barbara agencies. What we learned about other bluff deaths. Some of those deaths had injuries similar to Oscar's. And um, the conclusion of the forensic pathologists. They don't see it being caused by somebody hitting Oscar. They said that the injuries are consistent with an accidental fall. I'm watching Juan carefully, expecting some reaction. But his expression is even, unchanged. We didn't find that Oscar was murdered. Yeah, well, um, no one found that. Now, if you ask me my opinion, and, and, and based on what I've heard, I would have to say that he was. Does any of this that I've told you, though, move the needle for you at all? No, I've heard it before. I've heard, hey, I heard even it was a suicide. I heard it was an accident. I heard that, you know, that Oscar was careless. You know what I mean? The bar to convince you that it yeah. wasn't a murder sounds really high, Juan. Well, not as high, but I I just don't close my door to anything. You might hear that I'm struggling here. Everything I've learned over the last months, much of it new information, is being dismissed as just another theory. But I'm also thinking of the pathologist Dr. Lindsay Thomas, of trying to be sensitive, of letting go of the idea that I can convince anyone of something they don't want to hear. For now... My disbelief towards Juan's reaction is winning out. Coming into this, the the word murder was so strong and so loud from you, from Mr. Gomez, and Justicia para Oscar Mm -hmm. um, seemed to mean finding the murderer, and I haven't. Yeah, well... um Again, what, 28 years after the fact, Adolfo? You know what I mean? It, um, it gets, every year it gets 10 times harder to to pinpoint anyone that had to do with Oscar's murder. Um, it could have been a stranger. It could have been a passerby. We don't know who it was. So these are fair points Juan is making. It is possible that a random passerby pushed Oscar. It's possible that Javier and Jose were not telling us the truth. What we have is a lack of evidence for those kinds of possibilities. We did find evidence that supports this scenario, that Oscar fell accidentally at night with no witnesses around. And if that did happen, there's no way to prove it definitively, which leaves the door open for other possibilities, which seem more persuasive to Juan. And for Mr. Gomez, too. 
none of what I've gone through proves to you? No, no. For me, for me, all the theories, whether it's it was a crime, a conspiracy, an accident, they all have the same level of 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 you know percentage in my mind. No one has proved to me that it was it was an accident or it was a crime. Um, and, and that's okay, you know. For me, that's okay because um, whether time will reveal itself, um, that, that's something to to be seen. Our conclusion is just so similar to what the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office found nearly three decades ago. The agency Juan and the family have been suspicious of for so many years. I can't change that. All I can give him is my empathy about what Oscar's friends and family went through after his death. That's it. For me, I have come to new understandings while searching for what happened to Oscar. And there's one last conversation I want to share with you, with the person who helped me process my Chicano activist years, someone who I spent a lot of time with back then and who was close to Oscar, too. That's after the break. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Natalie and I meet Sabrina Enrique outside a grocery store in Sacramento. It's loud, so we have to get creative. Um, how about talking in the car? Okay. Is that that's all right? right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. we've got a Mitsubishi. <laughs> okay. Uh, I first met Sabrina in 1990 at a Chicano activist meeting in San Diego. She was a little younger than the rest of us, more connected to Cholo street culture. We carpooled to conferences and marches. I remember her radical speeches, intense stare and black clothes. Her family, the Enriquez, are legendary in San Diego. They helped create the city's Chicano Cultural Center. And her grandmother helped found San Diego's Ballet Folklorico en Aslan, a group that teaches Mexican folkloric dances and performance. Sabrina says she remembers giving presentations as a kid about Aslan and the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Chicano activism was in her DNA. She says that activism gave her a sense of purpose. I had a lot of um, conflict in my inner personal life within my family. And the, there was just a lot of chaos and then moving around to different schools. And the one constant was that I had this one outlet that it let me be like kind of maybe forceful in a way. And 
and feel like I like my my worth mattered when I didn't feel that in my life, in my personal life at that time. When Sabrina met me, I was just starting to embrace the term Chicano, still intimidated by the militant ideology of some of the people we met at Chicano student gatherings. It was at one of these conferences that Sabrina met Oscar. Um, so let's talk about Oscar. Talk about Oscar, okay. Uh, how'd you okay. meet him? You might have been there, homie. <laughs> so maybe. Daytime we place? He was on a panel for something. Uh, I, I just remembered seeing him and then initially just getting like this spark, this energy. And I was like, what's that? Like kind of like this shock thing which I hadn't experienced before. And I, I was initially first put it to like, was that just like a random like kind of like crush, you know? And then um, he came up and introduced himself as we were leaving. When we first like shook hands, it felt familiar. He was like a true like soul person, soul friend. We shared this really beautiful chemistry and connection. At the time, Sabrina said she was negotiating her needs and those of the Chicano movement. Some of the organizers told her not to apply to college because the movement needed her. But Oscar provided a different perspective. He was super encouraging, I remember that. And also had me kind of question or think about some of the environment or elements that were affecting me, you know, in people and in organizations and in things. He's like, you know, why, why are you focusing on this instead of focusing on, like, you know, college apps or something like that? And it sounds like Sabrina provided a different perspective for Oscar, too. Oscar was a complex person. You know, he had a lot of drive and animo but I think a little bit of a chaotic part to him. Because he would come to me really almost like swirling, like there were no periods <laughs> or commas in the language, just kind of like this like ball of energy. And by the end, he would always say, you know, just like he would, he would just be so calm and so grounded and good. And that was what we shared, was there was something there where he had this way of building me up and I had a way of grounding him. And that was how we were compatible, if that makes sense. It does. We've heard before from Oscar's friend, Eddie Salas, that Oscar was reassessing his relationship to the Chicano movement in the last year of his life. Sabrina saw a more internal struggle that Oscar was dealing with. He would say, like, what is he if he grew up with, st with stability, with a mother and a father in, like, a comfortable neighborhood? Like, they moved out of the barrio to give them a, a comfortable environment. He had friends, he had good schools. And he had a little bit of, like, who am I to be telling these, these kids that are in, in juvie or in, in the pen that, like, that I have the answers. So there was a little bit of that conflict questioning, who are you to speak to these things when you've had a different experience? Essentially, like from a place of what many people would regard as a privilege. There were also external pressures. Sabrina said Oscar was thinking of pursuing politics or communications, but was afraid of being seen as a sellout by the movement. She saw members of her own family experience these accusations firsthand. Well, they, you know, say, well, say they speak negatively about my tío Tupac. 
and his organization in, in Arizona and what he was doing, working with the United Nations for Indigenous Peoples for land and water rights. He was going to Switzerland to speak for Indigenous Peoples at a high platform with a lot of notoriety, I guess, you know? And so the organization in San Diego would look at that and say, well, you know, he's selling out because he's going on this world platform and not, you know, putting us ahead of him, essentially. Some of these more radical Chicano activists rejected any and all government organizations. They saw these agencies as part of the system that shut Chicanos out of socio-political opportunities in the U.S. And you would try to, like, voice concern, and then what would happen? Um, I'd, I'd get shut down. There's so much, like, harsh negativity and this bickering and a lot of, like, machismo and just kind of putting each other down. Someone leave the room. They're talking shit about each other. Sabrina said she felt especially dismissed because she was a woman. Can you give me a for instance? Like, oh, one time something happened? The women, like, would be doing all the pamphlets and then doing all the cooking and you know, be out working too, but then still have to give their contribution monetarily to to organizations, always being uh, essentially at the service of the men who had all the all the power and all the say so and the decision making. Listening to Sabrina is taking me back to conflicts that I experienced in the Chicano movement too. This idea we inherited from 60s activists that you didn't want to be a tío taco, a sellout, a coconut, as we said in the 90s. It made the world and my choices feel so binary. It created an atmosphere of suspicion rather than one of compassion and honesty. And at that time, I remember learning about the machismo of 1960s activists. In the 90s, we thought we were past all of that. I'm embarrassed to say that I'd never seen anything wrong with the movement's gender relations. Though I realize now, it's because I didn't look hard enough. I'm sorry you went through that. Um, oh, it I, was hell. It was shitty. I'm, you know, and I say, and I give that apology as someone who was part of that structure. No, 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 no. Well, part of it, if not, I didn't cause no. any harm to you directly. No, 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 no. But... I went to a lot of those meetings. I remember these meetings and the people Sabrina's talking about. I had looked up to some of them as my intellectual mentors. I spent a lot of time with them, driving to and from college campuses. I agreed to publish their writings in my college newspaper, Vos Fronteriza. We talked so much about overthrowing oppressive power structures but we hadn't examined our own. Did you see that, like, machismo Mm -hmm. in Oscar? I did not. I did not. And I'll tell you something. There there was a time I was really questioning, like, my identity. And, like, I had been dating a a woman who was uh, a few years older than me. And I hadn't told anyone. And he was the one person that I talked to about it. I had internal conflict. I didn't have the terminology 
to label it myself, you know. And so he was the person I talked to. And people who knew him differently wouldn't know that about him. But he's the one who was encouraging and was like, you know, you do you. And like no one else can like uh, label you and, and and put you in, in a, any position that you don't want to be in, that kind of thing. So that was the person he was to me. And he was very encouraging of me just, you know, exploring and being my own person. I used to think my identity as a Chicano was stuck in the 90s. But what this investigation has filled in for me is the progression of the movement since then. It's allowed me to see our work more fully, which means acknowledging the hurt we caused. And that allows me to recognize how the Chicano, Chicanex, Latinx activists who've come after us have created more inclusive spaces for all sorts of people, including my kids, who are multi-ethnic. And for me, too, a Mexican-born, formerly undocumented, border-raised American citizen. But I don't think we would have gotten here without 90s Chicano student activists working to resist xenophobic policies and to affirm their dignity. Back then, all I saw was setbacks. But now, I can recognize our victories. Chicano student activists protested and drew attention to Prop 187, which was ruled unconstitutional after it passed in 1994. Student hunger strikers won victories for their campuses, like the creation of University Chicano Studies departments and doctoral programs, which are still around in some form today. I think those efforts laid the groundwork for changes being made now. In recent years, California's public high schools, community colleges, and the 23-campus state university system approved ethnic studies class requirements. And then there's the way we talk about organizing today. In 2019, Metro leaders voted to drop Aztlan and Chicanex from the organization's name to be more inclusive of marginalized groups. Intersectionality, coalition building, anti-racism. So many of these ideas grew out of seeds planted in the 90s. Some of those seeds planted by Oscar. Hearing Sabrina talk about Oscar makes me proud in a way I've never been before of our Chicano movement as an ongoing process of liberating our minds. It's validating. This has been a healing process for me. Do I have Oscar to thank for that? Yes. <laughs> Why is that? Because he's the one who put me on this road of looking for him. And I think through looking for him, I found myself. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I, I still don't know the story of how you essentially went from, you know, high school into UCSD and then involved with reporting. Like, how did that come about? And I mean, and you can decide that you may or may not want to talk about it here right now or we could be done. But think about it. I can it. tell you a little bit about okay. it here. Okay. Yeah. Thumbnail is... Uh, 1986, amnesty is approved, right? And that allows me then to apply to UCSD. Mm. There's a counselor who helps me. There was still affirmative action. Mm -hmm. And so I got in on special action because I, did, I don't know if I, I didn't have the grades. So I get into UCSD. You? Uh, 
you see, you when you speak I like know, that, I, I like hard. I know. I should show you my transcript. <laughs> um, so I get to I use. I would watch my language around oh, you. Oh <laughs> like, don't curse. That's use funny. three syllable words. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> so you presented in a totally different way. Oh my goodness! What was the formality? What was the very formal language? Yeah, just... because I grew up around adults and like. Like I said, I didn't have like core groups of friends that that I could just be myself around very much. You know what? If you take me to Tijuana to my cousins, the Carmonas, you'll see a different. You'll be like, ah, border border Adolfo. But right? border border Adolfo is probably comfortable, right? Oh, Casual. Yeah. But you presented oh, yourself yeah. as if you were working. You know. That's so funny. I don't yeah. know. I, I'm, I trust you, totally <laughs> trust you, and it makes sense, and I can see that. I appreciated that you took things seriously, and you were never inappropriate. Like, all of those things, I will always, you know, have a high regard for you in, in your way, because you were reporting, essentially, and reporting the news. You seem straight arrow yeah. and, oh, yeah. like, oh, plink, yeah. I say straight out, yeah. clean cut, oh, yeah. put together, the big, thick, rimmed, black glasses, way before they were cool and trendy and everybody wearing them now. Thank you. <laughs> you presented yourself very professionally from the start, and that was a good thing. A few years ago, this kind of praise would have made me feel so uncomfortable. But now... I'm feeling this sense of connection with Sabrina. I'm starting to have the kinds of conversations that I closed myself off from growing up. Thank yeah. you. And like I said, you know, I'm hearing you now, and I know you've done so much more, and you're, 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 you know, at a at a really good place. But I'm hearing the same down Sabrina together with a super strong foundation that I knew back then. I just, I'm appreciating it in a different way. <laughs> so thank you. Producer Natalie Chinovsky and I are on our last trip to Santa Barbara. We're at Campus Point, the rocky bluffs where the UC Santa Barbara campus and the Isla Vista neighborhood meet. According to Oscar's death report, this is the location where he most likely fell. Is this campus point? Yep. There are students in twos and threes, walking, taking photos, or staring out at the ocean as the sun is close to setting. Below, surfers ride the waves, some very close to black rocks jutting out of the water. I step right to the edge of the bluff and look over. The drop down is maybe 20, 25 feet. Was this the view that Oscar saw too? How are you feeling about the idea of ending the project? That we have to finish the script and actually... Oh, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. I mean, like, emotionally. It's such a privilege to be able to tell Oscar's story and the story of his friends and his family, but also of his movement. So to me, it's a great privilege and I know it's got to come to an end, and it should, because I can't live in Oscar's world from 1990 to 1994 forever. And I wouldn't want to, because it's tough. But people have been. People have been living in, that, in those years, and that's all they've got of Oscar. 
you know, in the decades since the 90s, I've gotten into Judaism. At first, it was through attending services with my wife. And though I have not converted, it's become my regular spiritual practice. Judaism taught me about connection and empathy, unconstrained by space and time. This is a really interesting teaching from a rabbi that I, that I was reading. So the teaching was, okay, a wave is coming in, you know, from far out in the ocean, and it sees the waves ahead, and they're crashing, and the wave gets anxious. Like, oh my gosh. Oh no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crash and I'm going to disappear. But the wave doesn't realize that it's part of the ocean. It doesn't disappear. It's still part of the ocean. How is that relevant to Oscar Gomez? Well, all these things that we've been learning about Oscar, all these positive feelings that he left, uplifting things that he said to people, all this kind of like enabling that he did of people's positive identity of themselves, all these friendships that he had, his legacy, to me, is the ocean, right? You know, he's still there through all those positive things and through the movement, the people he touched. Thank you for the prompt. For all the gente who are, uh, you know, listening out there, you know, it's important that, you know, that we listen to these different things, you know, the poetry and the, the murals and the art. It's all part of our cultura and it's all part of our expression, you know. And so you gente out there, you are the, you know, as far as the radio goes, you know, I'm just the needle. You guys are the record, you know, and without without you guys, I'm, I'm not anything. So, I mean, it's all about giving back to the very people that give us, you know, the source and the poder, which is la gente, the comunidad. And once again, uh, if you want to give me a llamadita, you want a, a little feedback, 752. Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary, is written, reported, and hosted by me, Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Natalie Chudnovsky is the lead producer, and our associate producers are James Chow and Francisco Avilespino. Editing by Audrey Quinn. The show is a production of LAS Studios. Antonia Cerejido and Leo G are the executive producers for LAS Studios. Fact-checking by Audrey Regan. Mixing by our engineer, E. Scott Kelly. And thanks to engineer Sean Campbell. Our music supervisor is Doris Anahi Munoz. The music is written, performed, and recorded by Joseph Quinones at Secondhand Sounds in Rialto, California. Thanks also to past Eliast interns Mendy Kong and Kyle Chang. Our website, Elias.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding. 
Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, Emily Guerin, and Leo G. Imperfect Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.